Thank you, Oscar, and, and uh, thanks, Mark. Man, I mean, how many churches have a bagpipe player in their congregation? Just this last week, uh, Sue and I watched the last episode of The Crown, and I don't know if you all watch it at all. Uh, I've caught part of it, and the last episode is with the Queen, and uh, there's this great solo bagpipe solo at the end, and it's, uh, it's really, really moving. There's something about that instrument that's, uh, that kind of vibrates inside of you, I think, when you hear it. So, Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we thank you for this story uh, that Oscar just read, and uh, just the implications and that it has for us as, um, as a largely a non-Jewish people here. And uh, we just thank you for your grace. And Father, we also recognize that this is a time when um, that we have a lot of illness in our congregation, a lot of, uh, a lot of serious illness, and, and a lot of just stuff going around. And Father, we want to pray that you lift the people that are, that are ill, that are, that are dealing with grief, that are dealing with uh, loss, that you hold them up in a way that uh, they can only attribute to you. And we also ask that you use us to do that that you use us to be uh, the vessels of your Holy Spirit who uh, can minister to hearts like, um, like nothing else. And so, Father, we, we commit our worship to you, we commit our time to you, and we commit the, uh, the, the word to you and uh, ask that you use it to change us and transform us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, most in the, according to the church tradition, like, like Kinder was saying, uh, there are actually two events that have to do with the incarnation of, of Christ, and we celebrate. There's, of course, the Nativity. We celebrate December 25th as Christmas, but there's also the date of Epiphany, um, where they, we celebrate the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. And the Epiphany starts the Epiphany season. That means that's January 6th. Uh, that's a much better reason to remember January 6th these days. Uh, the Epiphany is a much better reason. Uh, epiphany just means uh, a manifestation or a, uh, a revealing, a disclosure, a discovery. And this is the, the epiphany, the manifestation, the disclosure, what Kendra was saying, of the Gentiles coming to worship the Christ child. And it's very important, we'll get to this in a few minutes, but it's very important that we realize what this is all about, that this is this, this revealing that the gospel, that the person of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, is the King of of creation. He, he sovereigns over us as Gentiles or Jews, either one, it is, it is wide open. And we'll look more of this in a minute. Um, but that's the important things of, of, um, of Epiphany. Uh, I see this story as, a, as kind of a unique story in a lot of ways, and I kind of see it as this contrast. We have these contrasts going on uh, between two very, very different approaches to what has happened. Uh, last October, when I was down in Texas for my aunt's funeral and visiting, and we had sort of a family reunion afterward, and we were uh, just kind of sitting around talking, my, my cousins and my uh, siblings and some of their kids, but we were all talking about old times. You know how you do when you get, to, you know, get together, you, talk, you remember these things. And, um, and I have this cousin that I grew up with. She's my age, Terry. We even live next door to each other. We were best friends for, forever. And uh, she was telling about how she would, when she was visiting mom, her mom, my aunt, in the hospital, and uh, Aunt Millie was warning the nurses to be careful of 
Terry, my cousin, she goes, you be careful of her. She likes to use the middle finger. <laughs> and we all laughed at that, and we all kind of joked about it, you know. And, and Terry was like, Mom, why did you say that? Why did you tell them that? And she goes, it's true. Well, I know it's true, but, but why did you have to say that? And then we started talking about these, these standards that our parents had for us and what they kind of instilled in us a lot. And uh, we kind of joked about it some, but at the same time, we were kind of serious about it. And I got to thinking about it, uh, of, of what this is. And I really believe it was not about rules. It wasn't about rules for them. It, it was about reverence. It was about respect. Uh, it was about character in our, in our hearts. And I started thinking about my dad, and I... And I realized that what he instilled or wanted to try to instill in me and my, and my sisters and brother is this sense of reverence. And I started thinking of some really some situations that stuck in my mind and they seemed so minor compared to some of the big events that happened, but they still are with me. Uh, for example, one of them was well, he came home from work uh, one day and he had found out in the field this perfect eagle's feather. And it was just beautiful. And he thought I would appreciate it, and he gave it to me. And for some reason, I kept that thing. It meant so much to me that he gave it to me and not my brother and not my two sisters. And for some reason, that was just this, this you could just tell this awe of respect for he had for this beauty, beauty of creation. Uh, I, I can remember um, he had a respect for work. I remember him telling me once that uh, he is happiest when he's working. And I kind of got that idea from him that I, I too, kind of feel like I'm happiest when I'm, when I'm working. It was a respect for work. It was a respect for animals. I, I, one, another incident that sticks in my head is we were out. I was helping my dad. In the, he raised Angus cattle, and uh, he had a calf that was born really, really sick, ill. And he and I loaded it up in his Suburban and took it to the vet, and the calf died anyway. And I felt this real sadness in him, almost like he had let down the mother cow. And he had this real respect for these animals. Um, last incident that I want to mention, I remember calling somebody a not a good name, you know. And he really got after me on that. You don't call anybody that. He said, and he quoted, um, I think it's Matthew 5, he said, Jesus said, when you, quote, when you call somebody that, you're worthy for hell you're worthy to burn basically and says i don't want you to call i don't want you to ever hear you call that call that person a name like that again and it wasn't just a rule it was a sense of reverence of respect that he had for a lot of things and i kind of realized this week that this is what this is what stuck out with me and this is what this story i think is about it's this contrast of reverence and, and irreverence and and i'm i'm not a prude but I do feel like we have lost this in our society, this sense of reverence in our society, that all the humor is irreverent, making fun of other people and other things. And, and I feel like we have lost this. And I, I laugh about the jokes, too. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, should I be? Um, should I have more respect for people? And I, and I really think that's what this story is about, that this story is a contrast between the Magi and Herod. One showing respect and reverence, and the other is like the quintessential model for irreverence and not caring for anything like that. 
And there's a contrast between Jerusalem and this home where the baby is found. There's a contrast between the temple and the house and and the manger. It's just this contrast of these two things, and one speaks of holiness and reverence and respect, and the other just, respect, just tr- speaks of, of greed and thirst for power at whatever cost. Total, total irreverence. So we're going to look at the story a little bit, a little bit more in detail. We're, we're in a story of uh, very familiar territory. Most of us know it. Uh, but first, we want to look at the characters. Who are the characters in this story? Well, the first characters are the Magi. And, and, and Herod, those two are introduced in the very, very first verse. Very first verse. We see both of them together. Herod is, uh, we know Herod is a villain. <laughs> uh, we know he's a villain because, not just because of what the Bible tells us, but we also have historical do- documents that paint him as a villain. I mean, he executed three of his own sons. Uh, he was holding on to power for whatever, whatever, at, at whatever cost. That that was his greatest fear. He was a paranoid puppet king put in the place by Caesar himself. Uh, he kind of got into power through um, in other positions of official business and stuff because of his dad was friends of Caesar's and you know how that works. Well, when finally Caesar appointed him as king of Judah, king of the Jews. And he lived in constant fear because his one job, his primary job was to maintain peace to keep Rome from getting in his hair. And so that was his job, and he was in a constant fear of losing power and, and getting run out by Caesar, maybe being executed himself. He is clearly a villain. I mean, not only did his sons, but he executed other people just for whatever reasons. And then, of course, we have the story in the Bible where he committed infanticide, uh, killing all the children under two just to make sure he covered all of his bases. So he, yes, he was a villain. The other character is the Magi. And uh, the Magi are wise men, kings from the east. We don't really know for sure, but they were east of the Jordan. East, I'll say it this way. They were east of the Jordan, and they saw this star in the west, and they started following the star. They knew something was up. They are people, there would be like scholars uh, or scientists today who see a, an anomaly in the sky. They study the stars, and they study these things. They know the patterns, but there's something different about that particular star that happens. And they know that something's up, and then so they follow it. And we don't know exactly why or what it did. There's a story that was written in the 4th century, just for you history buffs, called The, the, uh, the Revelation of the Magi. And it tells this story. It's like, an, it's like a book that tells a story, kind of elaborates on the biblical narrative. And in this story, the star actually speaks to them. You know? But we don't know any of that. We just know that they saw an anomaly, and they headed toward it. But they must have been somewhat familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures and the Jewish God for them to do this. And so they follow in, and we don't even know how many there were. Uh, We think of three traditionally, but all we know is they had three gifts. And we also sense that that our nativity scenes and our art kind of all puts them all together, the shepherds and the magi and the animals all around the manger. But that's probably not right, probably not true either. These are two separate stories. Luke tells us the story of the shepherds, and Matthew tells us the story of the Magi, and it's most likely the Magi came later. We don't know how much later, but probably somewhat later before they get there. And we don't know how many there are. I, was just, I just thought I'd put up some art that's put up in, in mainly painted in the medieval times that just show what the idea is. The point is that these were Gentiles coming to worship a Jewish king. And some painters paint it as if they came 
bringing a procession. I mean, a whole crowd of Arabs. Uh, Justin Martyr said that they were, that he mentioned five places in, in Arabia that they all came from, and he mentioned it like that it was fact. So we probably they were Arabs. And here's another painting. And you kind of see there may be more than one king, maybe a bunch of kings, a lot of royalty, who knows. Uh, but the idea here that I wanted to communicate is that the, these painters kind of caught the idea that these are sort of stand-ins for the Gentile people, that they represent the whole horde of Gentiles who came to worship Christ. So they came in there, and they must have some familiarity with the, with the Hebrew Scriptures, but we don't really know how much they had, but they were there to go. And we see this shifting happening in the story between reverence and irreverence, that there's a promise, and with it there's a threat. We see a contrast between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the temple and the manger. It's these two dichotomies that are running side by side. And it's basically, I believe, a story of reverence and irreverence. But it's a story of epiphany. They arrive in Jerusalem. And they know that there is some distinction going on here. Something different. And so they question Herod and his scholars and say, where is this Jewish child supposed to, be, supposed to be born? Well, Herod doesn't know, so he consults his priests and rabbis and, and teachers and scribes. And they say, well, he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And that's the right question and the right answer, but it doesn't satisfy Herod. It's like these, these magi are like the blind man revealing the blindness of the Pharisees. The Magi are revealing the blindness of Herod and his cohorts. And it says Herod was shaken. And then it says all Jerusalem was shaken. In other words, when Herod is shaking, everybody shakes. That's what kind of person he was. That's the fear he held over the people in Jerusalem. And that's where we find them. So we have this epiphany of the wise, and the Magi were responded with joy and reverence. When they arrived at the manger, it says that they, they rejoiced a great big joy. And it's really hard to translate this because you look at it, and it's really got these words that are, that are great. It's like he rejoiced, but not only did he rejoice, which is sufficient in the verb itself, in the, in the noun itself, but they rejoiced a joy. But it's not just a joy, it's a big joy. And it's not just a big joy, it's an exceedingly big joy. And they were going crazy. This was, this was unbelievable to them. They responded with the correct way. <clears throat> and what gets me is that they responded to, with reverence to things that are outside their scope, outside their world. They responded to something that is outside their culture, outside their tradition, outside their language, outside of their religion. And they responded with really, really big joy. And they bring him gifts. And this is symbolic of what Matthew is trying to say. And I think he's laying the groundwork for the rest of his book. They bring him gold, which is a gift worthy of a king. They bring him frankincense. They bring him frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense is used to, to, to they use for sacrifices to a god. And they bring him myrrh. And myrrh kind of has a double meaning here, according to the historians. Myrrh is used in wedding banquets as a perfume. And it's also used to prepare dead bodies. 
And so what I think Matthew is doing here is he's laying the groundwork for the rest of his book. And the book comes full circle in Matthew 28. Yes, it begins with these Gentiles coming to worship the king, and then it ends with the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, you're to go and be my disciple, make disciples to the uttermost parts of the earth. This business of river to sea is no longer valid. It goes to the uttermost parts of the earth, to every nationality, to every people group, to every language group. It is universal message. And that's what he's preaching. And that's what Matthew gives us this sort of foreshadowing. He's telegraphing what's going to come later on in the book. And what's the most common metaphor of this thing when, when Jesus consummates the kingdom? It's a wedding feast. And so all these things, he's telegraphing what he's going to say in the coming. And what gets me about these magi is they realize that what's good for Israel is also good for them. And I think this is so important. I mean, they, we are in such a, such a state these days of this zero-sum game. Uh, David Brooks wrote a great article in, in the Times this last week about this, that we, we just, that's our default mind, that if I'm going to win, you've got to lose. That if it's going to be good for me, it's not going to be good for you. One of us is going to be winning and one of us is going to be losing and for me to win i've got to i've got to defeat you not just defeat you maybe even destroy you but where the magi were there going hey we know a good thing when we see it if it's good for israel it's good for us it's going to be good for us but then you have the epiphany of the foolish and they tell the truth in the court that this is where the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. This is what Micah says. But they have total disregard for the word of God. It doesn't matter. What's more important is my power. The passage that Micah, that the, the scholars, that Matthew quotes and, and the scholars um, discovered for poor Herod, uh, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Whatever Herod thinks this says, it does not describe him. This king is a shepherd. This king cares for us. This king helps us live securely, and his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. In the, re in the book, in the rest of the book, even, Micah even tells us what God wants from us. He says, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what he wants from us. That's what he wants from Herod, and Herod just disregards it. A total attitude of irreverence. Power is so addicting that he's willing to lay all that aside in order to hang on to it. He's, a, he's willing to commit murder, He's willing to commit a fanicide. He's willing to commit genocide, even his own kids, as long as he can hold on to power. That's how addicting it is. Herod feels threatened. We usually think of, Howard, of Herod making the threats, but it's Herod who needs to feel threatened. He's the one who is threatened. The meaning of the star had nothing to do with him. 
And I really think it's another good contrast here that the meaning of the star is found in a manger and not in Herod's palace. It's found in the home of a peasant, not in a king's home. And it's not even found in the temple. Herod was also famous for his building. And in fact, the temple is so majestic, they call it Herod's temple. And even the disciples said, oh, isn't this amazing, Jesus? Look at this temple. Isn't this great? And what does Jesus say? There's not going to be a stone left in it. The temple is the child. Heaven and earth meet together in the person. That is the new temple. And finally, we need to ask ourselves, why did Matthew include this story? What's it here for? Well, like I said before, the Magi are sort of a stand-in for all the rest of us. They kind of stand in for the, all the Gentiles and to say that the child is the hope. And I think Matthew is basing this on, on Isaiah chapter 60. I think he's using Isaiah 60 as the basis for this, for recording this story for us. There are other stories he could have included, but Matthew chose this one. And I think it's because he feels like it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 60. He says, Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises up upon, upon you, and his glory appears over you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The Magi are the nations. They will come to your light, and the kings brightness of the dawn so that is the background I believe that this glory and light was not fulfilled in Isaiah's time but Matthew's saying it's fulfilled now this is the fulfillment of what we read in Isaiah 60 this is the great hope that's been promised to us in, in, in Isaiah 60 that great hymn that we sing every Christmas all the hopes and fears of all the years are found in thee tonight and Matthew is what's exactly what Matthew is saying. All those hopes and fears from Isaiah, Isaiah's time, are now found in him tonight. That's his point. So, <clears throat> just some way of some applications here. Epiphany gives rise, I believe, to, a res to, to reverence. And I think that's the rise part. That Isaiah 60 verse 1 starts out with a rise, shine. I mean, we use that kind of here, arise and shine. Well, Matthew is calling us and, and, G, and Isaiah is calling us to arise and shine. So this is the arise part. Epiphany gives rise to reverence. Just want to give you a few things of what I think about reverence. And I think we can get from this story. Is reverence is the virtue that keeps people from trying to act like God's. It just keeps us from trying to act like God's. It shows us where our limits are. It, it reveals to us our true size, if you will. And it keeps us from trying to act like a God, like Herod. I have a son-in-law who is a mountain climber, and he climbs mountains all over the world. He's one of those crazy people uh, who, who go up really, really high. And, uh, and I asked him why, you, why he does that, and he says, it's the view. You see the huge creation of everything you see, and it's just amazing, and you also realize how small you are. I don't need to go to a mountain to do that. I can just go to the Oregon coast, 
and say the same thing. Yeah, that's pretty big. And I'm this big. And my problems are this big. And I think it just helps us. It's just the virtue that we keep from trying to act like a God, which is what Herod is trying to do. Reverence for things above us enables us to revere the things below us. And this is the, this is the surprising counterintuitive thing, that if we revere the things that are above us, that are bigger than us, the ironic thing is we can turn around and revere those things smaller than us. In other words, we can revere the things that are above us on the food chain, but that enables us to revere the things that are smaller to us on the food chain. In other words, I think we, if when we revere God, we are more capable to revere our neighbor. We're more capable to love our neighbor if we have a reverence for God. And I think that that goes both ways. Reverence is not the same thing as holding your own in a religious debate. Apologetics is not the same thing as reverence. I can hold my own to debate. I can argue about points. I can argue about this or that. But I have to keep reorienting myself. This is not the same thing as reverence. Reverence is something else. In fact, reverence kind of tells me that my religious formulas that I like to spout off are kind of inadequate. They don't really explain everything. In fact, doing this, thinking that I, that I have all this certainty, reverence keeps me from having that certainty. Certainty is not the synonym of faith. Trust is. Certainty usually comes from pride. And with irreverence, without reverence, we kind of lose that certainty a little bit, that edge. We don't become as ferocious with it as we could be. We don't become as tribal with it as we should be. The, the, the tribalism is, the, is it, my group is right and your group is the enemies. My group is good, your group is evil. Well, reverence gets rid of that. A true sense of reverence will remove that. Reverence starts with a willingness to pay attention to the small and the ordinary. We have professional seekers in the Magi. They're constantly looking at the stars. They're mapping them. They're looking at them. And then they notice an epiphany. Something out of the ordinary. Just another star. But something's different. And it's this manifestation, this disclosure, this discovery and it starts with small, paying attention to the small things, even if it's just the feather from a bird. And it opens up the world. Reverence is a willingness to detour from your normal path. The Magi were just willing to get up and head toward the star, no matter where it was. And then they got another epiphany that said, you need to go back by another way. Go back the way with... Not, don't go by the short route through Jerusalem. You need to go back another way. And reverence is a willingness to detour off our normal path. We think this is where we're headed. This is where we're going. But be ready with an epiphany and a reverence for what God is revealing to change, to change directions, to take the other, other road. And reverence is a good antidote for toxic vices. And I think about this, if we have a reverence for just so many things, if we have, we have a reverence for birth and, and death even, 
that we have a reverence for marriage or sex. So though we revert those things and it will keep us from, from toxic vices. Uh, a reverence for nature, a reverence for truth and justice, a reverence for uh, wisdom, then it can help be the antidote for maybe some of the toxic habits and vices we may have if we revere them and respect them as, as gifts from God as part of the creation. Reverence gives rise also to action. This is the shine part. Reverence leads us to truth and light. As Christians, we're supposed to take truth and light seriously and believe truth and speak truth and take it seriously. Reverence may call us to say yes to God and no to power. Just like the Magi had to say, yes to God, and they had to say no to Herod. That may inquire, require civil disobedience, a nonviolent way of saying, no, I'm not going to go that route. I'm not going there. I may be commanded to do this, but it's not right. I'm not doing it. Reverence reveals the bigness of God's love and so strengthens our resolve that if we can truly grasp the love of God, and we understand the bigness of life, of, of the love of God, and the, and the extension of God's love, it can help us resolve to move forward and keep going. And finally, reverence can be salt, sought and cultivated. We can create space for reverence. It's something we can be proactive about. And then reverence creates space for more epiphanies. The epiphany may produce, may give rise to reverence, but I think this general evidence, ev ev this general, general um, um, posture of reverence opens the door to more epiphanies that God's going to reveal more and more and more to us if we maintain this reverent form of mind. And we can see these things and we begin to notice them and they come out of surprise out of nowhere. And every now and then I'll get, I have people will come to me and say, this is what God showed me. And you don't think that encourages me? Of course it does. When I hear what other people are seeing and what other people are revering and how important that is, I, I just, she's not here, so I'm going to embarrass her anyway. Cherie uh, would come to my office and she will share these things, these, these sort of epiphanies that create this reverence in her and you feel like you're on holy ground when you're listening. And you have a reverence of what, her, what she's saying and her story, and your spouse's story. And I've had this experience with my wife this last few weeks, that she says that God is showing her these things, and it gives me a sense of reverence of what she's experiencing, and what's God speaking to her, and what's God saying to her. And it creates reverence in my own life. Last week, we looked at Mary's Magnificat, that song that she sang in Luke. And uh, you remember she's, she says, the lowly will be brought low, and the mighty, the mighty will be brought low, and the lowly will be raised up. I got that backwards. The low will be raised up, and the mighty will be brought low. That's what her song says. And now we see it right here. We see the lowly being exalted. 
the child in a peasant's home being exalted. And we see the mighty being brought low. We see the magi who bring the gifts and bend their knee to the child. And we see Herod putting his heels in and saying, no way. But both of them are brought low. One voluntarily, the other involuntarily. The magi get brought low because they kneel. They recognize. Herod is brought low out of his stubbornness and out of his cruelty. And he dies a very cruel death. And so here we are 2,000 years later talking about the magi and turning our back on the villain. They're both brought low. We will be brought low. It just depends on whether we want to do it voluntarily or involuntarily. And that's the story of the Magi. We're going to celebrate uh, communion this morning as a chance to do that, actually. Uh, I think Epiphany is a good time to celebrate communion. Uh, it's, um, some churches celebrate Epiphany at the you know, with the baptism, but, um, but this is the time when God reveals himself through Jesus to the Gentile people. And God's gracious plan is that we reflect and it confirms his, his gracious character. And so we bend the knee to Jesus when we take communion. We do it voluntarily. And that's really the way of Jesus himself. Um, it is a light that is unexpected, but it also leads us home. And it may be an unexpected route, like the Magi route, but it will lead us home. And so I say the same thing to us. Outsiders are welcome. This is the time when outsiders, we can come inside. This is the time, the gospel that shatters boundaries, that shatters restrictions, that shatters, shatters the divisions of race or gender or class or whatever. This is an open table with an inclusive gospel that includes everyone and so all of us who believe that the christ child was the, was god in the flesh is uh, invited to participate in the table and uh, all of us who still believe also recognize that it's not a passive agreement we also are called to do things we are also called to shine and that doesn't mean wearing sequined clothes it means being a familiar a route for the light. So we may have to take another route home, but he will bring us home. We may take us a highway that's not very familiar to us, but it will lead home. And so I'm going to invite you to come and, and take communion. I'm going to ask Laurel and, and Paul if you'll come up, and John and Carolyn if you come up. and They're going to be serving communion this morning to us. And uh, as they're coming up, I'm going to read a passage um, out of Luke. Yeah, if one of you could be on this side, and, and I'll, I'll be down in just a minute here. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite passages for communion is when Jesus was walking, at the resurrected Jesus, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking, and they share with him. They, he says, well, what's going on? And they share with him what's going on. He says, then they said to them, what are these matters you are discussing so intently? And they stood still looking at him and said, 
uh, are you the only one who doesn't know about this? Um, where have you been? And he says, what things? And the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, a man with his powerful deeds and words proved to be the prophet before God and all people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But not only this, on the third day, since things had happened, furthermore, some women in our group amazed us and said the tomb was empty early in the morning, and they did not find his body, and they came back and said that they had seen visions of angels and were alive. And then he goes on, it says, when he, Jesus, had taken his place at the table with him, he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and at this point, their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then he vanished out of their sight, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was speaking with us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us, and so they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those of uh, them gathered together, and saying, The Lord has really risen, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road, and they recognized him, and they broke bread together. And that's what we're going to do this morning, to remember the, the, the purpose of the coming of the Christ child on the cross and his resurrection. So I'm going to invite this, though, we're